Father, bless these words to our hearts in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 2. In verse 11, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Now, who was Moses? Moses was this amazing guy. Right? Everybody in the world has heard of Moses just about. He's one of history's most significant individuals. He changed the world. Literally, he changed the world. Moses was a very effective, very consequential guy. You may not know anything about the Bible. You still know who Moses was, by and large. Like Very few people couldn't tell you who Moses was. Or at least very few people would say, I've never heard of Moses. He was very important in the general scheme of things. We are where we are today because of Moses. When Moses was grown, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. Now remember, Moses was raised as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his grandson. He wasn't his grandson. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And he was raised as Moses' grandson. He was a Jew and his mother had to give him up to protect him. So she sent him down a river where she knew that Pharaoh's daughter would bathe. Remember, in those days, they did not have bathrooms like we have. They would often bathe in the river. There's still places in the world where they do that. Moses' mother knew where Pharaoh's daughter would bathe and she sent him down that river. When she made the basket and she sent him down, he wasn't in the basket a few days. He was in the basket a few minutes. Maybe an hour at most because Miriam, Moses' older sister, followed the basket. She was on the shore. She was running after the basket as it was going down the river. And Miriam saw that Pharaoh's daughter had gotten the basket. She got her little brother. And she saw that her little brother was safe. So it's not like Moses was in this basket a long time. He wasn't. He was there a very short time. When Moses was taken by Pharaoh's daughter, she adopted him to be her own because she didn't have any children. She knew he was a Jewish child. It was okay with her. Even though the Jews were not well liked at that time among the Egyptians because the Jews were getting so big. There's so many of them. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was afraid that they were going to overtake Egypt. So he started activity against the Jews. But Moses was protected by Pharaoh's daughter and he was raised like Pharaoh's grandson. So Moses was a very significant guy and until he was 40 years old, he operated within that position of Pharaoh's grandson. Moses was an important guy in Egypt. So when Moses was grown, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. The Egyptians put the Israelis under tremendous burden. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So 
So Moses, this great leader, was a murderer. He was a little bit hot-headed, and he was a murderer. He didn't like what he saw. Granted, what he saw was wrong. He took it into his own hands, and he killed this man. And when he went out on the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. So you have this guy who was Pharaoh's grandson. He killed an Egyptian. Thought he did it in secret. It wasn't in secret. And then he got afraid. Instead of using all the authority and influence he had, He ran away. He was chicken. He ran away. He ran into the wilderness. Did not come back into Egypt. He simply ran away. Disappeared. This is the guy who led Israel out of bondage. This is the guy that God chose. In Numbers 12.3, it says, Moses became the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, meekness is not what the English word suggests. Not in the Hebrew, it's not, not with God. Meekness means a character that has great integrity before God. So, God is saying about Moses that he developed a character that had great integrity before him. It's a strength of character by knowing God. It's not this timid little cowering thing like we think of in the English when we say meek. Not at all. It's actually great confidence because you know God and you know who you are before God. Meekness is something totally different than what the English suggests. In Exodus 33.11, it says that God had such high regard for Moses that he spoke with him face to face as a man speaks to a friend. God considered and acted toward Moses like he was his best friend. Moses even argued with God and God would listen to him. There was one point where God said, I've had enough of the Israelis. They're acting in such a wicked fashion. They made this golden calf for themselves. They all got really perverse and started dancing around this golden calf, doing things that were completely wrong. God said, I've had enough. This is after he delivered them through the Red Sea. This is after they went into the wilderness. He gave them food. He rained manna from heaven. I mean, he took care of every single need they had. He didn't even let their clothes wear out. As though parting the Red Sea itself was amazing. These guys complained. They murmured. They were negative. And now they make this golden calf. And God said, I had enough. And he said to Moses, I'm going to kill all these people. And I'm going to start fresh. Just like he did with Noah. So I'm going to kill all these people. This time it wasn't the whole earth. It was just Israel. And all of the promises that I gave to Abraham, I'm going to fulfill them through you, Moses. And Moses said, God, don't do that. Whoa. That's pretty bold. God, don't do that. 
Your enemies are going to think you don't take care of your people if you do that. Don't do that. And God said, all right, fine. I won't do that. Why? Because Moses asked him not to. This is the guy who was a chicken who killed a man. He was a murderer and a coward. And then he went into the wilderness because he ran away. But something happened in the wilderness. In the wilderness, he was humbled. Sometimes difficulties bring in strong character. Moses needed the wilderness much more than he needed to be Pharaoh's grandson. He needed that difficult circumstance. Why? Because God was interested in using this man who was a murderer and a coward and quite frankly pampered. But God uses people who are sinners. Never think to yourself that a failure is a disqualifying problem. Now granted, if we fail, we need to get right with God. Nobody's saying we don't. Absolutely we do. But never in history has a failure been a problem to God. The reason is because the blood of Christ removes all sins. And so even though Moses was definitely a sinner, the blood of Christ removed his sin. His failures did not hinder God from using Moses. What did hinder God at the moment, and this is why he needed that 40 years in the wilderness, because Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness also. He spent 40 years being pampered as Pharaoh's grandson. Then he went in the wilderness for 40 years before he had the character enough to lead God's people out of the wilderness. Okay, so 40 more years in the wilderness on his own. Then he gets to Egypt, delivers the people, takes them into the wilderness and another 40 years. That was so vital to all of us that Moses went into the wilderness, that God used that sinner. God always uses sinners. What other option does he have? God always uses sinners. If you ever have a failure, get right with God, but never think to yourself that God will not use you because of your mistakes, because of your failures. Even if you sin, never think to yourself that God will not use you. Get out of your sin, get right with God, but never think to yourself that God cannot now use you. There are churches out there, thank God it's not the majority, but there are some churches out there, they will tell you once you've sinned, or at least they act like it, you're done, you can't do anything with God. Nope, you're out. That's nonsense. Moses was a murderer and a coward. But God made him into the meekest man that ever lived. In other words, the man with the strongest character as a result of knowing God who ever lived. And God spoke to him the way you speak to your friend. And Moses answered God the way you would answer your friend. Because they had a really strong relationship. God was not afraid of the fact that Moses was a sinner. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. The first king in Israel was Saul. Saul started great had a terrible end. 
Because Saul would not obey God, and Saul, there was no history of him committing any outward sins at all. I'm sure he did somewhere along the line, but it's certainly not recorded. As far as we could tell, Saul was a pretty upright guy. He had this this one really big problem. He didn't do what God told him to do. As a king, he couldn't afford to do that. Israel couldn't afford for him to do that. He didn't do what God told him to do. So God raised up unto them David because he removed Saul in verse 22 of Acts 13. David was raised up to be their king to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Saying that about David is a really curious thing. David did great for a while. He was 15 years old. He was a shepherd. He was really good at it. He killed a lion and a bear to protect the sheep. That's impressive. Then he went up at 15 against Goliath, the nine-foot Philistine giant veteran soldier of one of the most powerful armies in the world in the day. This guy brought the fear of the Philistines to everybody. He was literally a giant. All of Israel's armies were terrified of this. All the soldiers were scared. Nobody wanted to go up against this guy. This was a real problem for Saul the king, that none of his soldiers wanted to deal with this guy. And he was out there challenging Israel, bad-mouthing God, bad-mouthing Israel. And David said to Saul, let me take him on. And Saul said, you're a kid. How are you going to take him on? Hey, listen, I killed a lion and I killed a bear and I did it with my bare hands. I can handle this guy. Well, okay, not bad. Good resume. And so Saul said, fine. Here, let me give you my sword, my armor. David put on his sword, his armor. David was a little guy. Wouldn't fit. He said, I can't function in this. I can barely move in this. No. Keep your sword, keep your armor. I'll deal with it. So what does he do? He takes five stones out of a brook. And he puts them in his pouch. And apparently he's really good with a slingshot. And he comes and challenges this nine-foot veteran soldier, this giant, and he's got all this armor, he's got this helmet, he's got this huge sword, he's got this spear that you can even pick up. This guy threw this thing. He's got all this stuff going on, and David says to him, who are you to challenge the armies of God? Who are you to do any of this? And the Philistine looks at him and says, what am I, some mangy dog that you send me this kid? Who am I? I mean, what is this? Total disrespect. He said, I'll show you what this is. I'm going to kill you. Okay, fine. That's a little bit of a challenge if you are a kid. Okay. So they approach each other. David takes one of his stones, puts it in his slingshot, puts the rock right between his eyes. The guy falls down. Trouble is with heavy armor, once you fall down, you can't get up. And David comes and takes the guy's sword and cuts his head off. Oh well. And then Israel's army is a little bit emboldened. 
What was that? That was a guy who was doing pretty well. Saul made him one of his generals. And man, he could fight. He was doing great. He became best friends with Saul's son. Saul's son was supposed to be the king, except that David had the anointing to be the king. And Saul's son was humble enough, Jonathan, to recognize that, and he honored David as the future king, and he knew it. And he even honored it against his father. Now, as long as Jonathan was in David's life, David did fine. But eventually they had to separate because Saul was trying to kill David. And that's when his life went south. David messed up big time. David killed people. You made him mad, forget it, you're toast. He was a hothead. In Israeli law, you were not supposed to have more than one wife. David had a thousand. That's crazy. As a matter of fact, David taught Solomon indirectly, not meaning to, but by his lifestyle. Solomon learned how to sin also. Solomon had 3,000. Solomon married women he wasn't supposed to. They brought idolatry into Israel. Israel has never been the same. Yet God said, this is a man after my own heart. David killed a man so that he could take his wife. And it was one of his loyal soldiers, one of his best soldiers. And he kills him because he likes the guy's wife. What's with that? This guy was wicked. But there's something that he did have. He knew when he blew it. He knew when he blew it. He didn't try to say, oh, I didn't blow it. He knew he blew it. When Nathan the prophet came to him because of Uriah, that soldier whose wife he took, because of Uriah and he killed him, David said, I've sinned against God. He didn't hide it. But then in Psalm 136, 26 times he said, God's mercy endures forever. David knew what to do with his sin. When David blew it, when David sinned, he ran to the mercy of God. Every single time. And he said, God's mercy endures forever. That is the most highly repeated phrase in the Bible. And the one who repeated it the most frequently was David. His mercy endures forever. So David's like, I know I'm a mess. I know I'm a sinner. I know there's nothing good in me. I know I've blown it in every way imaginable. But God's mercy endures forever. And because of that, God says, this is a guy after my own heart. He's going to do my will. And yes, David did do his will. When God told David to do something, sure enough, David did it. He didn't question God. He didn't try to preserve anything. God said, take care of it. David took care of it. But in his personal life, he was a train wreck. But he knew the mercy of God. He was the king that led to all the other kings in Israel. And Christ says he will be on David's throne in the millennial reign. 
the second person in charge in the millennium. Okay, the first one is Christ. Number two in charge, David. David's coming back and he's going to be in charge second Christ. This guy was wicked. But he knew what to do with it. He ran to God. God was not afraid to use sinners. Now, look at Paul, for example. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Why? Because Paul, before he got saved, his name was Saul. God changed his name to Paul. Before he got saved, Paul would hunt down Christians to kill them. And if he couldn't kill them, he'd throw them in jail. Christians were terrified of this guy. That's why when he got saved, most people were very skeptical. But he had a meeting with some of the apostles. Some of those people who were with Jesus, Peter, those guys. And they said, no, this is the real deal. Paul got saved. Now, Paul spent three years in the Arabian desert being trained by Jesus. After Jesus was resurrected. That's pretty significant. Paul was a murderer. God used him anyway. You see, God is never hung up by your sins. No, you cannot continue in them. Sometimes people say, well, God is merciful, God is gracious, I can continue in sin. Yeah, go ahead and try and see how well that goes for you. He says, I chastise the one I love. You know what chastise means? Discipline, punish sometimes. You ever get punished by your parents? Nowadays, punishments are lighter than they used to be. When I was a kid, I used to get spanked. Well, I'll tell you one thing. God knows how to spank. And God says, I do that because I love you. If you think you can live in sin, you try it and see how it goes. And I'll guarantee you, you'll come out saying, you know, I couldn't live in sin. It didn't go well. It never does. But no matter what happens, no matter what failure you may have in life, that never disqualifies you from being used by God. That never disqualifies you for a relationship with God. The moment you come to God, that moment you are completely restored. God doesn't keep a tally of your sins. God doesn't say, well, three years ago you did this and four months ago you did this and you know you did it again two weeks ago and now you're doing it again. I can't trust you. People say that. God never says that. God takes away your sin and He completely restores you. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, young people, I want you to understand this. God says, if any man is in Christ, that is to say, if he is saved, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, everything has become new. That works because of Jeremiah 31, 3 and 4. 
There it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is God talking. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and with loving kindness I have drawn you. Again I build you, and you will be rebuilt. Now what does that mean? When a person gets saved, they're made to be completely new. Now, there are some people out there who will tell you, no, that's only new in quality. That doesn't really mean you're a new person. Obviously, you're not a new person. They don't know beans about beans. First of all, the word new in the original language is kanos. That word means newly made. Brand new, newly made. It's not talking about somebody who was around, whose life got cleaned up, and now they're new. It's like saying, I have a computer, it wasn't working very well, I took it to the shop, they fixed it up, and now it works like new. That's not new. That's called refurbished. There is no word for refurbished in the Bible. You are made completely new. Now, number one, you're new because you become the new creature. The new creature means in Ephesians 2, 15 and 16 that you are one person with Christ. It took place at the cross. Old things are passed away. The blood of Christ removes your sin in Revelation 1, 5 from time in Psalm 103, 12. Remember, east from the west in Psalm 103, 12 is a geographic reference that necessarily means time. Einstein showed us that. You remove your sin from time. All things really are made new. All things really are passed away. The blood of Christ causes that to happen. Now, what about the person in their experience? Sometimes people go into sin that affects their physical body and it changes their body. Sometimes it changes it with illness. Sometimes it changes it just chemically. It changes who they are. Physically. It changes them. Sin does that. It physically changes you. That's a matter of biology. God makes that new also. This is how it works. In your brain, there are certain cells called mirror neurons. Those cells are very important in the learning process. They are there to give you experiences through observation or through listening. You have 70,000 people in a football stadium. Somebody scores. 70,000 people go insane as though they were the ones who scored. This is particularly true in places like Europe. Well, they didn't score. But the athlete did. However, because of mirror neurons, they have the same experience as the athlete. They're not the ones who are doing the scoring, but the experience is the same because of the mirror neurons. The same brain cells firing in the brain of the athlete as he's scoring, those same brain cells are firing in their brain as they're watching him. 
That's what gives them the experience. The Word of God says in 1 John 3.15, if you're angry with your brother, you've killed him. Really? You've literally killed him? In your experience you have. It doesn't mean that you took a gun and shot him. But you physically have the same experience with the same results as though you've actually killed him. That's because of mirror neurons. Just the same way as the athlete who scored gives the spectator the experience of scoring. If you're angry with your brother, you kill him. Mirror neurons. Things you see, things you hear, things you think about, all of that stuff will give you experiences. Have you ever noticed that if you're listening to the Gospels or that you're reading the Gospels, you can see it in your head? It's actually giving you an experience. Now, the mirror neurons work together with the rest of the body, of course. It's all connected. And part of that is something called the epigenome. You guys know what genetics is, right? It's your genes, your DNA, the stuff that's the information how to make you. Well, you're constantly making you. Every hour, more than one billion cells in your body are replaced. You're constantly making you. Your DNA is very active. The controlling mechanism is the epigenome. That's the stuff that controls the DNA. It tells it when to turn on, what part to turn on, how long to stay on, when to turn off. Every bit of control is in the epigenome. It's attached to your genetics. Now, your genetics don't change, but your epigenome does. The way your epigenome works changes with your experiences. And so, your mirror neurons are giving you certain experiences and your epigenome is changed by that. The control of your DNA is changed by that. So, let's say that somebody is a normal person living in normal sins. It has a certain effect on their epigenome, the control of their DNA. Now, let's say you get saved after that. You start to have new experiences by the intake of the Word of God. That changes the way that your epigenome functions. And it changes the way, because of that, that your DNA is used. Every hour, more than one billion cells are being replaced. You don't have a cell in your body that's more than 10 years old. Every hour, more than one billion cells are replaced. But now they're replaced with an epigenome that's being controlled by the influence of the Word of God. And it's building you again. It's physically giving you a new body. So not only is your experience changed, yes, you are literally made to be new because of the Word of God's influence on your biology. Your DNA is 
not changed, but the way that it's used is changed. And it rebuilds you. Now, a number of years ago, we had a gal in our church. She showed me her picture before she got saved, a year prior. And it was her and several people on this picture. And she asked me, can you pick me out in this picture? I looked at the picture, I looked at it for a few minutes, and I said, no, I cannot pick you out. I can't. You are in this picture, right? She said, yes, I am. I cannot pick you out. She showed me who she was on the picture. Didn't look anything like her. It's not because she was somehow made up or disguised. It's that when she got saved, it changed her physically. Because she became a new creature. Literally new. You see, when a person is a sinner, they don't stay a sinner. God makes them into a new creation. When you become one person with Christ, yes, your sins were on Christ because you were there on His body, you were His body on the cross, but that all died with Him. And then when He rose again, you rose again with Him, but this time there was no sin, you were made to be a new creature. And even though you have the ability to sin now still, that sin will never be counted to your account because the blood removes it not just from you but from time. So yeah, God uses sinners. And God doesn't hesitate to use sinners because God knows what he did for sinners. And he knows that even though you're a sinner, you have no sin. Don't ever think to yourself, I made a mistake, I sinned, I failed, whatever. God can't use me. Nonsense. God could use Moses. God could use Abraham. Abraham was a doozy. God could use David. God could use Paul. God can certainly use you. Because if David was around today, he'd be doing a few life sentences. God can certainly use you. doesn't matter that you're a sinner. God made you into a new person. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, simply pray, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me so I can have eternal life with you. Amen.